Thank you, Bob. I will get it turned on. If you want to turn the overhead on for just a moment. I was admonished last week after it was over that in the toiling of the story of roughly a thousand years of Jewish history, I didn't make it very clear where I was in the outline. So it was difficult for you to follow along and do what you needed to do if you wanted to take notes. We'll be a little more careful about that today. If you'll remember, we were asking the question, how in the world did a Jewish fellow by the name of Nehemiah end up in Susa, the capital of uh, the Persian Empire? Are we up, Bob? I don't see the image here. While we're waiting, oh, there it is. Uh, We're going to be looking in Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning. We spent a bunch of time last week looking at this area that we concluded was about the distance of the California border to the Canadian border with the states of California Washington and Oregon, turn it 90 degrees and lay it in the Middle East. That's about the amount of space we're talking about. Oftentimes called the Fertile Crescent, this is where most of the Bible story takes place, is in this region in here. And most of it takes place in the area that's right around here. The Persian Empire was an amazing empire, as we remember, right? And what we're going to be talking about today takes place in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And then the rest of the book of Nehemiah is largely in Jerusalem, which is over here. So we're going to find ourselves today talking about mostly what takes place in about 440 B.C. Uh, That's going to be what we're going to be talking about mostly. And... We're going to be talking about this area from Susa here to Jerusalem. That's where our our story is going to take place. Now, when we open that up, and I think that's the end of what we're going to visit with on the screen. Uh, We mentioned that uh, if you want more of those maps, you can find them back where Bob is. So we open the book of Nehemiah and we start looking at the question that becomes before us. And the first first things that we read about in it is that the words of Nehemiah, the son of Halselah, I still don't think I have it pronounced correctly. And it says, now it happened in the months of Chiziv, which it turns out that's November, December time of the year. In the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, and the the 20th year is the reign of of, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, that I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, 
And some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who had survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now this is... Uh, about 70, 80 years after the Jews had first started returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and Nebuchadnezzar took them off, and the city was still in ruins. Now, the temple had been reconstructed and had been in operation for about 20 years at this point in time, but we still have the issue that that these people were still living basically in poverty. They had not yet been blessed with what basically they were living better if they were living in Babylon or in Susa or wherever they happened to be. Now the question is, who are these characters? Nehemiah, we'll look at a little more a little more detail. But the question is, is who is Halsela, Nehemiah's dad? We don't know. His name shows up twice in the book of Nehemiah. All we know is, is Nehemiah thinks he's important enough that the readers of the book will find that name of, in, of some value to them. Nehemiah is a careful writer. He's a half historian, half Storyteller, he's largely telling an autobiography. When we read this book, we'll find that he reveals a great deal about himself. We do know that because of who Nehemiah was, in all likelihood, his dad was probably somebody who was of significance in the community of the Jewish people who were in Susa. Now, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2, mentions his brother, Hanai, again in verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 2, he is mentioned, and again in chapter 12, verse 36. Um, But there's also one other mention of Hanai in Ezra. Now, remember that Ezra moved to Jerusalem about 20, 25 years before Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. So Ezra has been there a while. And we know that Nehemiah's brother, Hanai, was there sometime before he came back to Susa to report. So Ezra makes one comment and mentions a Hanai. But he refers to him this way, among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives and were found, were found the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozak and his brothers, Masai and Elizer and Jerob and Jeodah, they pledged to put away their wives and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Of the sons of Immer, which is a family of the priesthood, there was Hanai, 
and Zebedah. We don't know if this is the same Hanai. I suspect it probably is. It says in Nehemiah chapter 7, first three verses, Now when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanai, my brother, and Hanahai, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Interesting editorial comment. And then in chapter 12, Hanai is mentioned again. They're getting ready to march around the newly completed wall of Jerusalem. And Hanai is one of the members of the priesthood who is going to be marching around Jerusalem in one direction. The rest of the group is going to go around the other direction. They were going to meet near the, where the temple is and have a big celebration of dedication. And he's included in the, as, as a Levite. So that's an interesting thing that if Hanai is a priest, or if he's a Levite for sure, what does that make Nehemiah? Probably makes him a Levite. Now, if Hanai was the oldest brother, it would be normal for him to be in the priesthood. A younger brother would probably end up being a rabbi or a teacher, may not be dedicated as a priest. We don't know what that situation is. What we do know is that in verses 1 through 4, Nehemiah clearly identifies himself as being a member of the people of Judah, being a member of the Jewish crowd. And remember one of the things we talked about last week, we were talking about how God had prepared protection for the Jewish people by taking Daniel and having him become a part of Nebuchadnezzar's advisory staff, and then the subsequent kings of Babylon, and then when Darius took over Babylon, he became an advisor to Darius and eventually to Cyrus, and somewhere moved to Susa. And Daniel's latter part of his life is in Susa. Then we have the story of Mordecai, and Esther, and we have the story of Ezra and others. So there's a heritage of people. Where do we find Nehemiah? The last few words of that first chapter, it says, and I was cupbearer to the king. Now what in the world is a cupbearer? If the king's going to drink it, the cupbearer drinks it first. His job is to be a poison detector. But if you're going to spend that much from the time the king gets up in the morning to the time the king goes to bed at night, testing everything he's going to drink, how well do you get to know the king? Pretty well. Now, it appears that in the Persian Empire, these were not just anybody. 
you had to be a trusted official, you had to be somebody who was significant in the kingdom to even get to that point of being honored in that way. So Nehemiah was obviously somebody who had been highly successful in the eyes of the king, whether that was in business, whether that was as an administrator. Most of these Jewish people who were advising the king were doing so with God's blessing and were amazing administrators. And if you remember that map, they were trying to run with horses and swift feet an area from California to Canada. And that took trusted people to do that. Now in verse 4 and verse 11, Nehemiah also says that he starts a prayer in verse 4, and he said, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 11, he says, O Lord, I beseech you, you may, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. So he considered himself not only a Jew, but he considered himself a God, a servant of the God of heaven. Now understand, if we looked at the book of Daniel, and we talk about the period of time when Nebuchadnezzar was grazing in the pasture like a cow eating grass, and his senses came back to him, what did Nebuchadnezzar say? He said, I now know that there is a God in heaven, the true God of all of earth. So it's interesting that this referral of the God of heaven is something that had finally captured the people who were interested in righteousness in the Susa capital area, a carry forward. Now, we already talked about the fact that Nehemiah may have been a Levite, probably was a Levite. And generally speaking, Levites did not have much as far as possessions in Israel because they were not given land per se. They were not given land individually. They were given land as a group. But remember when Jeremiah sent a letter to the people that had first gone to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Babylon, he said, settle down, raise your families, get involved in business, look to the prophet of your kingdom, and do well. We would find out that Levite did well, I mean that uh, Nehemiah did well. We also found out that his brother was probably a priest, so that meant that Nehemiah could well have been a younger son, which meant he was a rabbi. The one thing we do know from reading through Nehemiah is he was well-versed in the Scriptures. Now, the Scriptures that they would have would be the writings of Moses, the writings of Isaiah, the writings of Ezekiel, the writings of Jeremiah. Those were things they would have. And he seems to know those particular 
books of the Bible well. So what else do we know about Nehemiah? And we can spend a bunch of time looking for them as we look through various passages of scriptures. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we find that he is a historian, he is a historian and a student of Scripture. We find that he knows the history of Israel. He knows how they were captives in Egypt, how God brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land. He knows the history of the prophets and of the judges and of the kings. He knows of their sin, their rejection of God, their continual turning to idols. Because when we read about what he has to say, we find out that he is rehearsing that prayer. And we'll go look at that prayer in more detail in a few minutes. We found out that he's a cupbearer to the king. We find out in chapter 2, verse 9, that he is an ambassador. The king gives him instructions to carry to the other governors in the area of the kingdom around Jerusalem. And that was a set of instructions about what the king wanted these other governors to do. So he becomes an ambassador. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we find that Nehemiah is getting ready to do his primary task. He was sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And it says in verse 11, chapter 2, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose at night, I and a few of my men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. In other words, he didn't have a parade in the middle of the night. It then goes on to say that he rode around Jerusalem and looked at the broken down wall and the places where the gates should be and they weren't there. But during that time, he formed a plan for how to rebuild the wall and to restore the gates. So he was a bit of a project manager. I always like to think he's an engineer. I resonate with this guy for some reason. In Nehemiah chapter 5, they've completed the wall, but they have a problem. Remember we said their prosperity isn't great. There appears to be a bit of a famine in the land at that time. And the people come to Nehemiah, who is functioning as governor, and said, uh, we need food to eat. We're having to sell our property, and we're having to sell our daughters, and soon we'll be selling our sons into slavery to get enough money to eat. And Nehemiah takes stock of things and says, who are you selling them to? Well, largely they're selling them to wealthy Jews, people who'd come back with money in their pocket. Nehemiah says, wait a minute. This isn't what God has told us to do with our Jewish brethren. Our Jewish brethren need something. We're supposed to give it to them. We're not supposed to 
loan it to them with interest. We're supposed to give it to them. So he starts a reform, and we can talk about that reform in greater detail. Chapter 5, it's reasserted to us in verse 14 that he is governor. And what's interesting in chapter 14, or chapter 5, starting in verse 14, Nehemiah is calling attention to the fact that he's a little bit different than the average governor. Chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. It's interesting the way the pronouns are set there. It looks like the person he's writing to may have been the king and to the court back in Susa. From the day I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. Now, if the governor had a food allowance, where did it come from? Where does anything the government have come from? Taxes, one form or another. He said, I didn't eat the food allowance. But the former governors who were, who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there was at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So he's feeding 150 to 200 people a day, three squares a day, and a bed. That's a fair amount of outgo, to put it mildly. Well, let's see how much it was. Verse 18. Now that which was prepared each day was one ox, six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Try feeding 150 to 200 people for 12 years. Apparently, Nehemiah was a man of means. Now, I know when the king sent him down to rebuild things, he sent some money with him to buy the goods to rebuild the walls, particularly to buy the logs from Lebanon to bring down to make the gates and the gate posts and all of that kind of stuff. Nehemiah says, and we can look at it later, he commends himself to God for that. In chapter 6, verse 1, we get an interesting story. It says that once 
it was clear that they were going to be successful in rebuilding the wall, that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gresham, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, said, let's have a summit meeting. Let's get together on the plain of Ono. And Nehemiah says, oh no, all they want to do is kill me. There's no reason for me to go out to the plain of Ono. But he's a little more diplomatic in the response. He says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave, leave the work and come down to you? And they sent messengers four more times. And each time he said no, for he discerned that their purpose was to do him harm. And worse yet, they wanted to distract him from the work so they could report to Artaxerxes that Nehemiah was kibitzing with the royalty instead of doing the job in Jerusalem. It says also in verse 10, that he went to visit a shut-in by the name of Shemaiah. And Shemaiah said, Ah, let's run over to the temple and hide, because they're after you. And Nehemiah responds and said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they, Sanballat and Tobiah, would have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. So we have a man with great discernment. We can keep going. We can learn more and more things about Nehemiah as we go along. But this is kind of a Renaissance sort of guy. He can be an advisor to the king, and the king finds him of interest. He apparently, as we'll learn next week, was a relatively cheerful guy because when he comes in disturbed about what's going on in Jerusalem, the king says, what's bothering you? Now, what disturbed Nehemiah? Why would the report that came in with his brother be disturbing to him. Remember there had been two edicts before this. The first edict came from Cyrus that said to the Jewish people, go back and repopulate the land and build a temple. That said that you were supposed to do something that was of great worth. The second edict given to Ezra was go back and set up the worship process and get things working right in Jerusalem 
and start making things happen. Well, a functioning city in those days, one of the first things you did was you built a wall, a place where people could be safe from the marauders of the day. And you know that as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll find there's this constant tension between the residents of Jerusalem and around it with the peoples that are a little bit further away. And Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gresham, and a bunch of others were constantly picking away at these folks. The thing that's amazing is that God protected them. They, on more than one occasion, were going to gather up their troops, come marching down to Jerusalem, and level the walls again, and put the people back in subjugation. And somehow it petered out and never came to anything. But when Nehemiah gets this report, after two edicts from the king of the land, and the fact that God had promised to bring the people back to Jerusalem, he hears, yeah, the temple's built, but it's not happening very much. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned, and the people are in reproach, and the people are in distress because of poverty. It says Nehemiah immediately did what? Starting in verse 4, it says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. There is a remnant there in the province who survived the captivity, and they are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire, and Nehemiah is in great distress. What do we do when we hear about our brothers and sisters in Christ and other places who are in great distress? Do we identify with them? Now, Nehemiah is up close and personal. Now, Nehemiah's never been to Jerusalem that we know of before he goes here and what we're going to learn about next week. But yet, his brother was there. Interestingly enough, my sister and her husband, Dave, have ministered in Alaska. Now, I've had the privilege of being to certain places in Alaska, and I've been to Palmer, where they now live. But they lived out on the Yukon River in a little village of people. I've never been there. And yet, because of their stories to us about those people, there are certain people in that village that if I were to go there, I would feel like I knew them. And then they lived down at the end of the Aleutian Peninsula, just before you start island hopping if you're trying to keep your feet dry on your way to Japan. And there's a whole group of people there that we know. And when those people suffered things and suffered distress, we would get the word from Dave and Deb, 
And we would identify with those people and we would pray for them and we would rejoice with them as if we were there. So having this connection with the people in place that you've never been as part of being normal, as we learned about in Sunday school, it's a part of being human. So what did Nehemiah do about his distress? One, he expressed his emotion. He wept. I don't know if, I think that moves us over on the next page. I haven't looked to see how it printed out, but point three in our outline. Then it says he mourned. Now what is mourning? Mourning is a process of internalizing what's wrong and finding a way to live with it. It's a normal thing to do when you're trying to resolve something. But then he fasted. Now we don't talk in this church much about fasting. We should probably talk a good deal more about it. But why do you fast? Well, sometimes you fast because you're sick. And nothing will stay down. Sometimes you fast for health reasons, because it's healthy to do so. But generally, when you fast, it's because you have something that's bothering you, and you want to prepare yourself to hear what God has to say about it, and you're removing the distraction of food from your life. And the discipline of fasting helps you prepare your heart for what God is going to say. And after doing all that, Nehemiah starts praying. Now, we need to look at Nehemiah's prayer from two perspectives. Where did he get the content that he prayed? And exactly how is his prayer structured? And we'll do some of both, but let's read this prayer. Starting chapter 1, verse 5. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eye open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, and if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them. Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are 
your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, where did Nehemiah get the content for this prayer? Have we ever heard words like this before? If you'll think back, at the end of the Exodus, God tells Moses, you're not going into the land. God finally says, okay, I'll let you go up on the Mount of Pisgah, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, and I'll let you look over the Jordan River toward where Jerusalem is, and you can see a part of the land. And Moses does that. Now you have to understand the book of Deuteronomy is Noah's, or Moses' last instructions to the people of Israel. He's getting them ready to go into the land. And a whole, book, a whole bunch of the book tells them about how to do the things they need to do to have a godly nation in the land. But Moses' last address to the group of people of there is, O people of Israel, be a holy people. Because if you're not, Something's going to happen. And Moses brings that up early in the book, in chapter 4, where just verse 23, So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and made for yourselves, and make for yourselves graven images in the form of anything which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. And he says, if you don't do this, verse 27, you'll be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Then at chapter 28, near the end of the book, verse 15, but it shall come about after he'd given them clear instructions again, Moses did, about how they're to do what God has commanded them to do. But it should come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And there's a whole list of curses whole chapter full of them. And then at the end of that chapter, verse 49, Moses said, And the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. After a whole bunch of other things are going to go wrong in their lives. He said, The Lord will bring, this is Moses speaking, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, 
who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed. You who also leaves you no grain, no new wine, nor oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. And it eventually says, and they will take you away to live in their towns. That's what Moses had to say. But Moses wasn't the only one who had something to say about it. And I'm flipping pages here because Ezekiel had something to say about it because he talks about how the northern ten tribes are going to go into captivity. Then we get to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 12 through 16, Jeremiah says, Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert, so that no one passes through? The Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I have set before them. They have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart, after the bowels, after the f- as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink, and I will scatter them among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them, until I have annihilated them. Jeremiah later says, chapter 25, verse 5, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever, ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not forsake me to anger, do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to do anger, provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, and behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. And I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations around about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation forever. I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. We mentioned Ezekiel, chapter 5, starting about verse 7. Lord God says, Because you have more 
turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes nor observed my ordinances nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. It goes on to say, Because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols, with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw, and my eye will have no pity, and I will not will not spare. One-third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword, and one-third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheath a sword against behind them. Lastly, Daniel. In chapter 9, Daniel prays a prayer almost identical, a little more lengthy to the one that Nehemiah prays. And Daniel prays it because he'd been reading in the book of Jeremiah and the 70 weeks were up. Daniel had lived it. At this point, he must have been about 85 or 90 years old. And he said, "Uh, 70 weeks are up, God. And then he prays a prayer almost identical. We won't take the time to read it because we need to spend some time in the prayer that Nehemiah prayed. Let me come back to it here. So Nehemiah has a history. He has people who taught him the Scriptures. He knows the Scriptures. He understands the Scriptures. And he understands the concept that the people of Israel are in, scattered all over the Persian Empire because of their sin, and he confesses it. Looking at Daniel's prayer, he said, I beseech you, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments. Should we not acknowledge God when we start to pray? Nehemiah clearly acknowledges God. He clearly has a picture of a big God. A God that transcends everything. Then Nehemiah identifies his relationship with God. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah clearly identifies a relationship with his holy, transcendent God a God who has been intimately involved with the people of Israel. And then he does as we often need to do, confesses their sin. 
confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. It's both a personal and a collective confession. How often do we really confess our sins when we pray? Really confess our shortcomings and our wrongdoings? Then Nehemiah starts quoting Scripture. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who I have been, who have been scattered, were in the most uttermost parts of the heavens, I will gather, gather you from there and I will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. Where is that place that God has caused his name to dwell? Jerusalem, the temple. So Nehemiah not only is quoting scripture, he's quoting scripture with a promise in it. If when you're over there, you finally figure out that I'm God, I'll bring you back to Jerusalem. That's exactly what God is about. And then Nehemiah goes about setting a, claiming a promise. So if you're looking at three down at point four, he rehearses scripture, then he claims a promise of God. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. He's claiming a promise saying, God, you can do something about this. And grant his servant, that's Nehemiah, compassion before this man. Without the next paraphrase, we wouldn't know who this man was. But we do. So Nehemiah makes a request. A request because he wants God glorified. And then he identifies today's need, and that was grant him compassion before this man. And then he makes the phrase, and I was a cupbearer to the king. Now we know who Nehemiah wants God to have an influence on. How often when we are going to go and make a request to do something that God wants done, do we ask God to prepare the heart of the person who needs to grant us the favor that's needed? Isn't that what Nehemiah is doing here? 
He's asking that the king will respond with a godly response. Now, we'll have to wait till next week to find out what happens when Nehemiah goes to the king. Mary Arnold is going to discuss that with us. But it's interesting to note that Nehemiah prepared himself to act. He saw something that was wrong. He saw something that wasn't right. He identified that God said he would bring his people back to Jerusalem, to the land of Judea, and he would bless them in the land And that didn't seem to be taking place. And Nehemiah wanted to know why. He knew that there was a tendency of the Jewish people, even when God blessed them and took them into the land and gave them abundance, that rather than worship him and follow him and live the way that he had equipped them to live, they would quickly do three things that they weren't supposed to do. They would intermarry with people who were not of the Jewish faith. Interestingly enough, God doesn't say anything about marrying somebody who isn't a Jew, who has become a Jew, and their faith is in God. But he has a lot to say about marrying somebody who is not a practicing Jew whether they are of Jewish heritage or they are a proselyte to the Jewish faith. Secondly, they fail to honor God. And thirdly, they start worshiping the gods of men. That's what Nehemiah confesses. It had been happening to them in Babylon and then in Susa and other parts of the kingdom. And they'd had more than one reminder that God was sovereign, including the one that we read about in the book of Esther, where everybody in the land was supposed to rise up and kill all the Jews. And yet God provided Mordecai, who advised Esther, to go before the king and ask for a solution. And the Jews were authorized to arm themselves to fight back. Or there wouldn't be a Jew to bring back with Ezra, or anybody to come with Nehemiah. It sounds like Nehemiah brought 150 officials, hangers-on, along with I don't know how many others back with him to the land of Judea. And most of the book of Nehemiah, when we get into it, has less to do with building the wall and everything to do about purifying the people so that they could fulfill the promise of God to be able to bless them. Nehemiah was not bashful about his relationship with God, and he prays with God, and he asked for a blessing upon Nehemiah, and he also asked for compassion. Now, what did Nehemiah need from his earthly king? He needed a blessing. 
He needed an edict that says, you are authorized to go build the wall. He needed resources. He needed access to the king's army to protect him as he was traveling with money and with other things. He needed access to the king's forest to get trees. He needed money to buy the stonecutters and that sort of thing. He needed political clout because there were a whole bunch of other people around Judah who didn't want Judah to rise up again. They didn't want the Jews. Even as today, nothing much has changed. Who most wants Israel to disappear from the face of the earth other than Satan? Take a look at the neighbors. Those are the same neighbors the Jews have had since their inception. And the other thing that Nehemiah wanted was an opportunity for God to be glorified, an opportunity for the king, Artaxerxes, to be reminded about who the real God was. Now the question is, when we enter a when we identify a discontinuity between what is and what should be, what should we do about it? We have a line right now where there's a huge discontinuity between the way people should be living and the way they are living. The question is, what's God going to do about it? There has never been a nation that has practiced what we are practicing in our country today that God has not wiped out. Simply overrun it. Go through history. One kingdom after another rises up and is living a relatively clean life and then they descend into the same sins that we see going on in the nation today and shortly thereafter Somebody comes in and runs over the top of them. So what is God going to do about it? There's only two solutions. There's the Nineveh solution, which is repentance, revival, if you want to put it that way, or destruction. Second question we need to ask is how can I be involved? Nehemiah got, go, got ready to go talk to the king. Nehemiah was in a unique position to talk to the king, to take the king's resources and go rebuild Jerusalem by heritage, by knowledge, by position. by what God had provided him, he was in a unique position to make a big difference. What unique position are you in to make a difference? And sometimes, the little difference we make can make a big difference. I won't take but just a few minutes to tell you about the story Helmut Teichert. 
Helmut was kind of like a brother in the fact that he had been raised on a dairy farm, been raised in a church. But because I took the time to help make it possible to bring a entertainer evangelist to Montana State University campus our freshman year, in February, Helmut heard the gospel presented more clearly than he had ever heard it before. And from that moment, he was lit with a fire that caused him to eventually end up developing an evangelistic show that traveled the world. It was a multimedia, music, slides, big screens, all that kind of stuff made a huge difference at that particular time. It was an effective evangelistic tool, touched a lot of lives. I didn't do much. I followed an outline that says, get a place for Andre Cole to make his presentation. He was an illusionist. Invite people, let God work. Other than cheer Helmut on, I had nothing to do with what God did through Helmut's life. But it was a huge impact, simply because I did the thing I was equipped to do, which was share with him my story about Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't as if he hadn't heard that story before, because he was raised in a Lutheran church. But somehow... At that moment, he realized that God was Helmut's God. Not the church's God, not somebody else's God, it was Helmut's God. At this moment, Nehemiah is suddenly discovering that the God of his ancestors, the God of Daniel, of Moses, of Abraham, was his God. What is your God doing with you? Heavenly Father, thank you very much for our time together. Let us dwell on what you would have us accomplish. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.